The reading is Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 11, and can be found on page 918 in the Red Bibles. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought a donkey and a colt, and placed their clocks on them, for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much to... Uh, Grace, for reading that uh, reading for us, that very familiar reading to a lot of us, isn't it? Lovely to hear it in Mandarin as well as in English. And today's Bible passage, it is familiar to many of us. We hear it every year on Palm Sunday. It's a bit of an old friend, that person we manage to meet up and catch up with once a year. But there might be some of us here who don't know that passage so well. If this passage is unfamiliar to you? Well, the context here is that Jesus is approaching the end of his ministry. He's approaching the end of his life. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and in doing so, he's knowingly and deliberately entering his final days. Those are the days we celebrate over the next week during Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, his last meal with his disciples and friends. Good Friday, the day of his death on a cross to take away our sins. And Easter Sunday, the day he rises from the grave, bringing eternal life for everyone who believes in him. And I don't know about you, but sometimes Palm Sunday feels a little bit like the warm-up act, doesn't it? It's kind of like the thing that we do, but you know, it really it's just preparing the way for what's to come. But let's not jump ahead, because today... Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. At Passover, all adult male Jews from literally everywhere were supposed to come to the city of Jerusalem to come to God's temple to celebrate. And so as you might imagine, the city was overflowing. 
some of the reports from around that time say that basically the population of the city would quadruple at that time of the year. The, the, the boundaries overflowed. They had to extend the city of Jerusalem right out as far as uh, the village of Bethphage, which is what's mentioned at the beginning of our passage. And uh, we see near the end of chapter 20 that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem from the direction of Jericho. And of course, he's not coming on his own. A large crowd is coming with him. This crowd are enthusiastic about Jesus. They've seen him before. They know him. In verse 9, it's clear that they believe he's the Messiah, the descendant of King David finally coming into Jerusalem to rescue them. And in verse 11, strangely, they call him a prophet too. It's like they know he's important. They think he's probably the Messiah, but they're not quite 100% sure exactly who he is. But of course, in verse 11, they're answering that question Pete uh, showed us from verse 10. Because the people who actually live in Jerusalem, who are inside the city walls, they're more wary. Who is this Jesus figure who's riding up into their city, riding on a donkey but being proclaimed a king? Who is this Jesus figure? And, And actually answering that question shows us that Palm Sunday is a little bit of a warm-up act for Holy Week because it helps us to see who this man is who's going to die, who this man is who will rise again. Today's passage helps us to see and to answer that question, who is Jesus? And we see in our passage today that Jesus is both on the one hand humble and gentle Jesus, but is also on the other hand Jesus as a king, an authoritative and truthful king who comes to judge. And so Jesus is both a humble and gentle king and a king coming with authority and truth to judge. And it's important we see in our passage and in the context of our passage to see that Jesus is both of these things. Both of these things are important to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But let's take each of them in turn and start with humble Jesus. In verses 1 to 3, we see that Jesus plans to get on a donkey for his entrance into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, this scene, I don't know if you know this, it's an interesting fact. This is the only place in all four Gospels that Jesus is described as doing anything other than walking apart from when he's in a boat. So when all these travels that Jesus goes on overland in all four Gospels, this is the only place in all four Gospels where he's doing anything other than walking overland. And in all four Gospel accounts, an emphasis is placed on Jesus' riding this donkey into Jerusalem, not as an accident, not out of necessity because he's done his leg in, but as a deliberate part of his plan. Do you see that? Jesus deliberately plans to do this. Matthew shows us why Jesus does this too. Matthew says that Jesus here is deliberately fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's Zechariah 9. See, your king comes to you gentle or humble and riding on a donkey. But what's even more interesting is that that Matthew chooses to emphasize only one part of that prophecy from Zechariah 9. 
Because in Zechariah, Zechariah 9, Zechariah mentions that the coming king will be righteous and victorious as well as gentle and humble. But Matthew chooses just to quote humble here in our passage. Why might that be? Well, throughout his ministry, Matthew has shown us Jesus demonstrating humility. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, right back in Matthew 5. Many of us know that. But in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Similarly, in chapter 18, verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the chapter before this one today, literally the one before, Jesus says in verses 26 to 28, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so in our passage today, Jesus' entry on a donkey, it doesn't just fulfill Zachariah's prophecy, it symbolizes this humility that Jesus stands for, the reality that Jesus has been showing talking about again and again and again of coming not to be served but to serve of revelation not to the wise but to little children these are the upside down values of jesus's kingdom the upside down values of the kingdom of which he is the king what about the crowd the crowd with jesus are enthusiastic aren't they but they're only enthusiastic because they've missed this crucially important point. Jesus' kingdom isn't going to be what they expect. Jesus isn't a king like they expect him to be. They're imagining Jesus is going to come into his city, Jerusalem, to drive out the Romans, a glorious victory spilt in the blood of the Romans, sword in hand, all of that kind of thing. But blood will be spilt. But Jesus' glorious victory will be his greatest act of humility. All of these things he's been building up to, even him coming in on a donkey, is pointing us to this greatest act, death on the cross. The cross reverses the world's idea of wealth and power as the place of victory Instead, victory is found in the depths of suffering and defeat. The crowd um, proclaiming Jesus, they can't even begin to imagine that. Even now, 2,000 years later, we can struggle to imagine it too. Because it's always counter to the worldly instincts of our age, of every age, where fame, desire, Wealth and power, the things that drive the human heart. But only when we realize that no amount of recognition or adoration, no amount of money or power or wealth, all of these things that we work for, none of them can save us. 
Only when we realize we need Jesus, that only he can save us. Only then will we have what Jesus called that wisdom denied to the wise and given to little children. Only then, when we really need Jesus, can we answer the call he gives in Matthew 11 that symbolizes so much of his humble kingdom. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In our humility, humble Jesus offers us his kingdom. He offers us salvation and rest. And yet, and yet Jesus doesn't just come to die. For those of us who tend to think of humble, gentle Jesus, we can sometimes miss that Jesus doesn't just come to Jerusalem here humbly, although he does. But he also comes in authority and in truth to judge Jerusalem as well. To judge it and ultimately to come again down the line and judge the whole world. This is our second part And actually, it's an essential part of who Jesus is and why he's come. We see this here, Jesus as judge, both in the references that the crowd themselves make and in the context to our passage today. But let's start with the crowd. They call Jesus the son of David, which means they recognize him as the saving king, the Messiah. They shout, Hosanna, which means save, literally means save. And they quote Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is the last of what's called the Hallel Psalms. Psalms, which is Psalms 113 through to Psalms 118. Over the next two evening services, Tim is going to be taking us through two of those Hallel Psalms. And it's believed that these Psalms were always, every year, said at Passover, And so these are the words that would be kind of fresh in the crowd's minds as they came to celebrate the festival. But they're not just quoting Psalm 118 here, are they? They're literally acting it out. Verse 27 of Psalm 118 describes a joyful pilgrimage of the people carrying branches into the temple, led by a victorious king who has won a great victory over his enemies. They're thinking, here comes Jesus. Here comes the king sent by God to be the king, to do kingly things. We've seen in our series, haven't we, on Saul and uh, what, what the role of a king is supposed to be. They're supposed to be like God, but they're supposed to rule and protect. And of course, to judge. But the crowd also have another picture in their minds. Because there was a 400-year period between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And as we know, a lot of things can happen in 400 years, let alone a week or one year. And in that time, Jerusalem was conquered by the Greeks. And one of the Greek rulers, a man, I'm probably going to pronounce this incompletely wrong, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, oppressed the Jewish people. And he deliberately defiled the temple in Jerusalem as part of his persecution. He basically, he brought in a pig, an unclean animal, and he sacrificed it on the altar to Zeus. 
All of these things, his oppressive rule, triggered a rebellion which led by a family called the Maccabees, which ultimately led to Jewish independence. You can read about it in 1 and 2 Maccabees. And in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, we get a scene very similar to this one that we read about on Palm Sunday. Their palm branches are waved in victory, and all the crowd of people file into the temple with them, which is then ritually cleansed of the defilement that had been given there. And so just like in Psalm 118, and just like in 2 Maccabees, Jesus is going straight to the temple. The next two verses after this one are Jesus going to the temple. And Jesus is going to cleanse it. But this time, he won't be cleansing it of sort of defilement brought by foreign oppressors. He'll be cleansing it of defilement brought by the Jerusalem authorities themselves. And as he does so, he makes clear his judgment on them. These are the verses, the ones immediately after our passage today. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changes and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And so Jesus the king has come to cleanse the temple, to judge the old authorities and to establish his new kingdom, his new kingship. In verses 18 18 and 19, just a few further on, Jesus builds on this by using the, uh, the image of a fruitless fig tree. These are those verses. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Jesus uses the fig tree as an illustration. Like a fig tree, worshippers of God are meant to bear fruit for God. But like this fruitless fig tree, Jerusalem has failed to do that. Jesus is coming to judge fruitless Israel just as he judges the fig tree. In verses 42 to 44 of the same chapter, he puts it like this. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. In its place, Jesus is building his new kingdom. His upside-down kingdom, his humble and gentle kingdom, will be a fruitful one. His disciples will be fruitful people. And Jesus goes on to say in the following chapters that he will one day come again as king. He will return again triumphantly. He will return to the world as he enters the city in triumph. 
And this time he won't come just to judge the Jerusalem authorities, but the whole world. Chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again and again in chapter 25, Jesus will talk about his coming judgment and the importance of bearing fruit. So Jesus hasn't just come in humility, although he has. He's come in judgment too. In order to establish his new kingdom, that great kingdom of gentleness and peace, he needs not just to serve and to die, not just to offer comfort and peace, but to judge the bad orders of the world and to call people to follow him, to bear fruit in serving him as a replacement for fruitless Israel. Building his new kingdom means judging and overthrowing the old, whether that's first century Jerusalem or ultimately the sin and injustice of 21st century Britain. Only then, only then can he bring in fully his better kingdom, that kingdom of humility and peace. And so as we finish, just two uh, last things to think about. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're a kind of righteous sort of person, you know. You're frustrated and angry at all the evil and wickedness in the world. Maybe you're thinking, where is the justice? Why hasn't God done something about this or that? Well, Jesus says he is the king who will come again in triumph to judge and bring justice. He will build his perfect humble kingdom, his just and humble kingdom. The question for for you and for me and for all of us is, will we trust in Jesus? Will we let him be a king and will we be a part of his kingdom? Or maybe you're sitting here today and actually you're feeling anxious, you're feeling overwhelmed. Well, maybe what you need to hear is that Jesus has come for you, a humble king who gives his life to serve you, where you can find comfort and rest for your soul. But he won't leave you there. Eventually, your king at the right time will lovingly pick you up and say, right, now it's time to go out there and bear fruit for me. Go and help me build my kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we know this passage so well that it can be tempting for us to just read over it and not to take it in, not to find out more and and learn more about your son. Thank you so much for King Jesus. Thank you that he will come, he will die for us, and that he will rise again for us. But thank you also that he will come in justice, that he will make all the wrong things right. Father, would you be helping us to trust in Jesus? Would he be our king? Would we serve him? Would we find our rest in him? And would we humbly bear fruit for him? In his name we pray.
Amen.